turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Well, as we close out the week here today on Abounding Grace, Pastor Gary Wagner returns us to our series on worship. The prerequisite to worship is what we're looking at next. Join us. Can anybody just worship? Or does it take a prerequisite to worship? That's the question we're answering here today on Abounding Grace. Welcome to the broadcast from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose and online at reformedheritage.org. We are in Psalm 24 today as we take a look at this prerequisite to worship. What does it take for us to come to God properly in worship? And what does it take for God to respond to our worship and acknowledge it? These are questions we're answering on today's program. Here's Pastor Gary with today's Abounding Grace. We are continuing today with our theme of worship, the grandest of all priorities. We saw in my first sermon in this series that worship is the primary concern of God. The first three commandments are about our worship of God. We saw in Christ's prayer that worship was his primary concern. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed it be thy name. The first petition of Christ is focused on the glory of God, that he be sanctified, set apart to be the only object of our worship. We also saw that the essence of the gospel message from Revelation 4 is to fear God, glorify God, and worship God. We saw that worship is the first response of the regenerate heart. As soon as the blind man was given sight and said, Lord, I believe, he began to worship. We saw that worship is the mark of a justified man. In Luke 18, the tax gatherer was declared a justified man, and he fell down and worshipped God. We saw that worship is the eternal duty of all the inhabitants of heaven. Day and night they do not cease to bring glory to God's name. Throughout eternity, they sing out, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. From the Old Testament, we learn that worship is the essence of man's relationship to God. And Romans told us that the absence of proper worship was the reason for God's anger against man. And last week, we discussed the three reasons why we are to worship God. First, simply because He is God. Secondly, because he deserves it. And thirdly, because he commands it. However, 
It would be a grave mistake for us to assume that God accepts whatever we offer as worship, no matter what. There is a terrible, terrible mindset among modern Christians that worship is simply the act of showing up either on time or late, sitting in a pew, keeping your eyes open for an entire hour, or in my case, uh, slightly more, and leaving without having done anything but sing a few words from some songbook. If you got nothing else out of last week's sermon, I hope you understand that worship is not what you do here. What you get here, which is hopefully much, is not the important thing of worship. The important thing about worship is what you leave here. We are to give unto the Lord glory and honor. We are to give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. The essence of worship is giving to the Lord honor that is due unto His name because He is God, because He deserves it, and because He demands it. As I said last week, if you are asked what you thought of this worship service, and your response is, well, I don't think I got anything out of it, then you missed the whole point of worship, brothers and sisters, because you obviously came here to be entertained. You came to have your ears tickled. You came to hear something new or dramatic or cute. Well, let me remind you of the preaching of one of the most respected Puritan pastors, Jonathan Edwards, who would read his sermons in a slow monotone and never raise his eyes to look at the congregation. Why did he do that? He said he didn't want his ability as a speaker to be that which impacted his listeners. And yet his congregation would cry out for mercy from God. They would even fall on their knees and ask God for forgiveness right on the spot. They were moved by the sheer force of the Word of God spoken in a nonchalant manner. We have certainly lost our ability to do that probably because of videos, DVDs, computer vision, computer games, and television. We've lost our ability to focus on something for an extended period of time. Even our TV and radio news comes at us in three to five minute segments, and then we have to take a break. Well, it's interesting to me that in a little book entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, and if you have not read it, you need to pick it up, brothers and sisters. We are told by Mr. Po Mr. Postman about the Lincoln-Douglas debates that went on for seven hours and no one left. Just a hundred and fifty years ago, and for seven hours, no one left. 
Can you imagine seven hours of anything without a break? We have a hard enough time holding up through an eight-hour work period. And remember, this was seven hours of standing up during a political debate. We have lost the ability to concentrate. We want to be entertained all the time. And this is poured over into the church. We can't call that worship because it's the same mindset as a cabaret. We hope the theatrics move fast enough to hold our attention. But what should really hold our attention is that we have come into this house of God to delight in God, to give Him the glory due unto His name, and to conduct ourselves in such a way that He is pleased with us. The question should never be, am I pleased with what I do here? But is the service conducive to me truly understanding God? Can I truly give God the glory He deserves here? Is my worship pleasing to my Heavenly Father? The more we begin to grasp that worship is not about us, it's about God. And we realize that the sermon is not given to please us, but to please God. And that our singing is primarily to please God, not so much because of our great voices, but that the music focuses on God's greatness. And that our prayers are primarily filled with praises to God and recognition that all things are from His hands. As soon as we get that idea that we have come here for His sake, not ours. Our worship is going to take on a greater dimension. For too long, we have felt that worship is for our benefit. So we have evaluated what takes place here on how it affects us, when the real issue is, how is what we're doing considered by God? I'm not saying that God is any way affected by us. We do not affect what He does. But we are told in Scripture that our behavior and our attitude is either pleasing Him or displeasing Him. The question is, does what you do here week after week and your attitude about worship pleasing God? Not everything we offer as worship actually qualifies as worship. There are prerequisites to acceptable worship. Just to get this idea in your mind, I'd like you to turn to the book of John. We have been in this passage once before, but we go here because this is the watershed passage of the theme of worship. Many Many sermons have been preached on these verses. Turn to chapter 4 of John. Here you have the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus confronts her with her promiscuous lifestyle. And like most people do when you confront them with their sin, she changed the subject. She begins to talk about religious matters. In verse 19, the woman said to Christ, Sir, I perceive 
that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh that ye shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. Now remember what the situation was here. She was referring to the worship on Mount Gerizim, which was actually equivalent to our modern-day Pentecostalism or Charismatism. It was all bubble and froth. It was all show. It was all celebration. But there was very little doctrine in it at all and very little truth. Then in Jerusalem, you had the Jews who were converted to Christianity, who had all the right doctrine, but had become nothing more than dead orthodoxy. And she is asking, which is correct? His answer is, neither. It should be the people with all the right doctrine over here enjoying a celebratory spirit in their worship because right doctrine emphasizes the glory and the power and the mercy and the sovereignty of our almighty Heavenly Father. And how can you not want to celebrate when God has blessed you with an understanding of His truth. We must never divorce the truth of worship from the spirit of worship. Both groups were not truly worshiping. Brothers and sisters, you cannot worship even if you have all your doctrines aligned with Scripture if you do nothing with it. Nor are you worshiping the God of the Bible if all you're doing is dancing in the idols and speaking in a language no one can understand if your focus is not on God's truth. So Jesus said, it is not in the mountain and it is not in Jerusalem. He says, you worship that which you do not know, but we worship that which we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, he has just laid down the first requirement for worship. You must worship in spirit and in truth. We must have the right heart response to what our mind understands as biblical truth. Christianity is not exclusively a religion of the mind. It is not exclusively a religion of the heart. People's hearts whose hearts do not respond to what their minds understand, prove their minds really don't understand the biblical truth. You cannot be emotionally detached from the love and truth of God, nor can you dictate or regulate your emotions apart from the truth of God. Our thoughts are to be controlled by Scripture, our feelings and emotions are to be controlled by Scripture. Every facet of life has to be controlled by Scripture. 
The raising of our children must be controlled by Scripture, not how this book says it is to be done, or this guy over here, not how my parents did it, or your parents, of course, unless their ideas of parenting were strictly regulated by God's Word. How we live with our parents is to be controlled by Scripture. Our finances and our nation's economics are to be controlled by Scripture. And if this is true about these areas of life, how much more our worship? They who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. And this is an absolute requirement. The important thing that I want you to see out of John is that God is seeking people to be his worshipers. God is seeking true worshipers. And by inference and strong implication, he is rejecting false worshipers. And as I mentioned in the first lesson of this series, God is seeking people to be worshipers, not just converts. God is primary seeks, primarily seeking people to worship him and to worship him according to his spirit and his truth. And by the way, this implies that we cannot add man-made elements to the worship of God. What does that mean? It means we don't have slideshows, movies, skits, clowns, candle lighting, salutes to any flag, children brought up to the pulpit and told little stories. And why do I say this? Because these things are not found in worship in God's Word. What you find in the Scriptures is offerings to the Lord, praises to the Lord, the sacraments, praying, and the preaching of His Word. Those are the elements that God has set down as proper for His worship. Worship is much more than coming and sitting out there trying to stay awake and looking somewhat interested for an hour. William Beveridge, an 18th century Anglican bishop, writing on the theme of worship, said, When we speak of godliness, we must not restrict it to a few particular acts, but look upon it as comprehending the whole system of all those duties which we as creatures owe to him who made us, and in deep performance whereof our worship and adoration of him consist so that he who worships God rightly may thusly be termed a godly man, and no man else can properly be called such a name. He is saying that he who worships God correctly, according to God's will as written down in his word, can be considered a godly man, and those who don't cannot. Most importance that we understand the importance of worship if we are to be called godly. Beveridge goes on to say this, And therefore, if we would not be mistaken in such a matter of such consequences as this, in order to our finding out what real godliness is, we must search into the nature of divine worship, and seriously considered ourselves what it is in Scripture's sense 
to worship God. What it is in a scripture sense to worship God. And this is why we are approaching this theme of worship with the significance that we are. I want you to see that God may rightly and certainly refuse our worship. Look at the book of Amos, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. And for those of you who are not familiar, Amos is between Joel and Obadiah, if you can find those. Amos, chapter 5, verse 21. This is God himself speaking about the issue of worship. He says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell your solemn assemblies. How about that? God himself saying to his people that he hates what they are offering up as worship, and he rejects it, taking absolutely no delight in it. God may refuse our worship. And I believe much of what is being offered up today in American churches, God rejects. Maybe even some of ours. Verse 22, Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beast. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. That's quite an indictment. I don't want to hear your songs, he says. Don't put your money in the plate. I'm not interested in your money. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. I reject your festivals. This is what God is saying about the worship of many. I hold my nose, I close my eyes, I cover my ears. Is this what God says about your worship? It's not worth looking at, it's not worth listening to, it stinks. What would ever make God say such things? I know this sounds so foreign to you. Because many of us feel if we just show up and give our time that God ought to be tickled to death. It was just so kind of us to take an hour out of our week to spend with him. What could he possibly want more than that? Well, in verse 24, here is how he counteracts our feeble worship. But let judgment or justice run down as waters and righteousness as mighty streams. What makes worship unacceptable? There is no justice or righteousness. There was sin and there was injustice. Because of that, he said, I hate your worship. So there are two more prerequisites to acceptable worship. The first one is that worship is unacceptable to God when there is a broken relationship between two believers. In Amos, we see the people of God being oppressed. And, of course, for that to take place, there had to be sin between man and man. So you're out there saying, okay, that's fine, but what could that possibly have to do with worship? A lot. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Christ, in his Sermon on the Mount, 
gives us explicit teaching on how this type of sin prevents and precludes acceptable worship. Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, now notice first, he doesn't remember that he has given something against someone else. You remember someone has something against you. The problem may be your fault or it may be the other person's fault, but the issue is not who said something first. Well, here's God's instruction. Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Christ puts a premium on relationships within the body of Christ. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us, PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Grace.